Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the full quarter autobiographical reflections lecture sponsored by the Stanford Emeriti Council. This is the first of three council-sponsored events in October. Uh, the details were outlined in an email, which I hope uh, you all received. To summarize that email, uh, this December, the this October the 12th, Edward Feigenbaum will speak on organizing and archiving scholarly materials. And on Tuesday, October 25th, there will be a reception and dinner for emeriti interested in meeting our undergraduates. If you would like to attend this latter event, uh, you are asked to contact Angelica Herrera in the residential education office. Uh, and if you did not receive the email with details with this kind of information, uh, please see me or other members of the council. Uh, today is the final session that Sharice uh, Jusson will be with us. Sharice, over several years, has ably assisted Pam Moore, both in informing you through our emails of our activities and in staffing these, uh, these sessions and particularly the reception. So I'd like you to join me in, in thanking Sharice very much for all her contributions. <laughs> Introducing today's speaker, Professor Emeritus Paul Berg, is Philip Pizzo, the David and Susan Heckman Professor and Professor of Microbiology and Immunology Emeritus. Phil's professional focus has been on pediatric cancer and infectious diseases. He was dean of our School of Medicine from 2001 to 2012, and in 2013 became the founding director of the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute. A prolific scholar and recipient of many awards, he co-chaired the Institute of Medicine's influential and timely 2015 report entitled Dying in America, Improving Quality of Life and Honoring Individual Preferences at the End of Life. Thank you, Phil, for agreeing to provide us a brief background on today's speaker. Well, thank you so much, David, and uh, I must say, that it is a true honor to be here with you today. Um, when Paul uh, asked whether I would be willing to speak about him briefly, um, I it must acknowledge that it was one of the high points of my life to be able to do that. Paul is truly one of the most iconic and incredible people I know whose influence has been, of course, on science and medicine, but also on institutions and individuals. It is, needless to say, impossible to capsulize a career um, that began uh, on, Jan on June 30th, um, uh, 90 years ago, um, when Paul was born. Um, he has uh, had a life of remarkable accomplishment. Now, everyone knows here um, that Paul is the recipient of the 1980 Nobel Prize um, in Chemistry, a prize which he won with two other uh, individuals, Wally Gilbert um, and Fred Sanger, and of course, Paul Berg. And what's important to say about that is that when we think about where we are today in science, those three individuals really shaped uh, much of what has transpired. Between Gilbert and Sanger, much of the underpinning for genetic sequencing, the whole sequencing of the human genome, was articulated. But Paul's discovery on recombinant DNA technology changed the way we use DNA and genes to have benefit for human life. His insights that began uh, in the 60s and 70s um, that created a stir of interest, we led the Asilomar Conference in 1975, created both a dialogue and an opportunity um, to use genetic engineering in ways that have today been incredibly uh, remarkable. Um, Paul's work 
continues, um, even though he made the proactive decision in 2000 to close his lab um, and to refocus his efforts. He is called upon by virtually every advisory body, including more recent, most recently um, the work on CRISPR, to really help reflect and think about how science and ethics and society should come together. Paul's contributions transcend um, his work in science and medicine. He is one of the founders, in my opinion, of Stanford Medicine as we know it today. When he arrived here in 1959 with Arthur Kornberg and other extraordinary members of the uh, now biochemistry department, he and his colleagues laid the foundations for what has become a remarkable medical school. And over the years, his influence on countless students and individuals has truly been inspiring. I have to say um, that in addition to Paul being a role model for excellence, um, for continuing to um, contribute insights, he's been one of the most influential mentors and guides for probably thousands of individuals over his career. And I feel extraordinarily privileged to have been one of those. Um, uh, you know, I've often reflected on the fact um, that the connection between us as individuals is sometimes coincidental. Arriving here at Stanford, as you heard in 2001, I wouldn't have predicted um, that one of the most extraordinarily influences of my life, the impact of that on Stanford Medicine and Stanford University, would have been an association with one of the most remarkable people um, in the 20th and 21st century. So um, I would uh, say to you today uh, that this is an extraordinary honor and treat um, to be here with Paul, and uh, I will now, with great privilege and um, respect, turn the speaking to him. Paul? Yeah. Yeah. What a way to begin. <laughs> well, first I want to uh, express my appreciation to the Emeritus Council for inviting me to do this talk. Um, it's a real pleasure to, to give it a go. Uh, I also going to warn Phil Pizzo, I'm going to on the lookout for a tit-for-tat opportunity to introduce him on some occasion. Uh, thank you very much, Phil, for coming and for those remarkable comments that you made. Um, I, I'm going to follow a few of the hints I received from David about this talk, so I will, I think I, I'm mindful of the time and I may have to speed up at one point because I'm trying to encapsulate my entire life in 45 minutes is, is not usually what I try to do. Anyway, so as Phil said, I was born and schooled in New York, in Brooklyn, exactly. And my interest in science arose, I recall, somewhere in middle school uh, as a result of having read two remarkable books one is Aerosmith by <clears throat> Sinclair Lewis, and the other one was Microbe Hunters by Paul de Cruyff. Now, it's remarkable that if you ask most of the leading scientists in the country, they will cite those two books as having been quite influential in their own lives because it is a story of adventure and discovery. And in that sense, it excites the passion the idea of discovering something that nobody has known before was really a remarkable exposure. My interest in science was reinforced when I went to high school because we had a teacher there who ran a science club for students interested in science. And we had available to us all the equipment and materials that were normally used in the teaching of physics, chemistry, biology. And all of it was there in a big storeroom and we had access to it. And what she was remarkable in doing was never answered a question. Always told us 
how to go look for an answer, either by experiment or by a search through the literature. And so discovery was instilled in me early on, the excitement of discovery, the passion for, in this case, biomedicine at the time. And so when I finished high school, that was my goal. But when I graduated from high school, it was only a year after the country was embroiled in World War II. And so I enlisted in the Navy because I wanted to do my part. And the Navy, after a brief respite, uh, assigned me to Penn State University for pre-flight training. Uh, <clears throat> during the course of, of that time, I was allowed to take other courses that I wanted, so I started taking biochemistry courses at Penn State, at the same time taking the usual courses that were necessary for the training. I eventually served some three years, ending up on a submarine chaser at the end of the war and just afterwards. And as soon as I got out of the Navy, I went back to Penn State to complete my undergraduate degree in biochemistry. At the time, biochemistry's training at Penn State prepared one for a job in either the pharmaceutical industry or the food industry, neither one of which really interested me. So I decided, and I noticed that in the jobs that I had during summers, it was always the people who had the PhD were telling everybody else what to do. So I decided it was important to get a, a doctorate. And I went to Case Western Reserve University, uh, <clears throat> their school of medicine, where I did a PhD in biochemistry. Uh, that was a very influential period because uh, the, my mentor uh, was a remarkable person. And I think right then and there, when I finished, I decided I was going to devote my career to what I call academic science, academic research. I was no longer interested in getting a job in a pharmaceutical industry or related. Um, after finishing my doctorate, I went abroad for a year. I spent a year in Copenhagen at the Institute of Cytophysiology and had a successful year there, not only in science, but also in culture. We traveled a good deal in Europe during that year. Uh, and then I entertained and actually did a second postdoctoral fellowship year with Arthur Kornberg, who was then at Washington University in St. Louis. I arrived there, I think, in, it was 1953. And after a year of being a postdoc, the work went very well. He offered me a position in the department as assistant professor. And so I was determined I, I was going to stay at Washington University for a long, long time. It was a great place. However, a few years later, Stanford approached Arthur Kornberg to recruit him to become the chairman of a new biochemistry department when the medical school moved from San Francisco to Stanford campus. Uh, he made it a condition of his acceptance that he could take his entire department, uh, which existed some six or seven faculty members, uh, with him. That request was granted, which would probably today's would never have ever occurred. Uh, nevertheless, in 1957, he accepted the job. And for two years, we were sort of a lame duck, ducks, I should say, uh, in St. Louis before coming to Stanford. And so in June of 1959, six of us migrated from St. Louis, Missouri to Stanford, California, along with uh, another faculty member that was hired in anticipation of the move, Dr. Baldwin, sitting right here. So seven new faculty created a new department and a sort of a new uh, theme here at Stanford in the medical school. That was quite a remarkable thing. I think many people look at that occasion as an entire department moving from one university to another, 
And I should point out that two people here visiting, it's ironic, uh, were the amongst the first recruits for the new department at Washington University to replace us when we left. <laughs> so coming to Stanford was a big deal. Uh, we were very excited about the experience. And for the first six or seven years, my research was largely focused on trying to understand the way genes get translated into their other product proteins. I'm not going to give a lecture in molecular biology, so you don't have to worry about that. All we have to know is that genes encode the structure of proteins, and how that all happens in a cell is really quite remarkable, and I'd love to to give that lecture some other time. But <clears throat> so that work went very well. Lots of students got their PhDs, and we turned out a number of interesting things. All of this work was actually done with bacteria, particularly the bacterium called E. coli. I'll come back to E. coli later, so I just want to mention it now. It is a bacterium which inhabits the intestinal tract of all humans. So it's a well-known organism. It's probably the best studied organism now. Um, and it was used for many, many different kinds of experiments, genetic experiments particularly. And so in that experiment, we tried to define the steps and the products and the mechanisms by which genes, the information contained in genes, is actually expressed into the end product of proteins, how that's done and how it's regulated. Now, by about mid-1960s, it was pretty clear that the outlines of this process were well understood. We knew the players, we knew the way it happened, and we knew exactly most of the over relying features of it. There were a lot of details which is still being worked on. But a question that came up in my mind is what we had discovered in bacteria, was it also the true in case in, say, for example, animal cells, human cells? Is the mechanism and the structure of genes in human cells the same as that of bacteria? Is it read out in the same way? Are the processes similar? And so that question was unanswered. There were dabbles going on in different places. But by and large, the way genes are function and stru the structure of genes and the function in what we call eukaryotic or mammalian cells, human cells, was largely unknown. So I decided somewhere around in the mid-60s that that was an interesting direction to go. And so we put aside the work we had been doing with E. coli and started anticipating how to get at the problem. Um, my focus in that change was to see if we could understand cancer. How did cancer arise? And what were the underlying causes of cancer? Uh, with that focus, I decided that we would study certain viruses which were known to cause cancer in animals. There are two viruses, which I'll just mention. One is called SV40 because it's derived from a simian virus, a simian uh, monkey, the African green monkey. And the other one is polyoma, which is a mouse virus. But the unique feature of both of them is that when they infect their host cell, human or mammalian cells, or animals, they cause cancers. Now what was interesting about the choice of using these viruses is they have very small genomes. That is, the virus is a small pellet, if you will, with a hard shell, and inside the shell is their single chromosome, which contains roughly five genes. So it's and one of which is responsible for causing cancer. So it seemed a reasonable approach to see if we could study what happens when such viruses infect human cells, 
what is the nature of their replication cycle to produce newer virus, and what is the nature of the event that leads to this oncogenesis, the formation of converting this a normal cell to a tumor cell. So we sort of shifted the entire emphasis in the lab away from studies with bacteria to now studying human or mammalian cells. Now one of the interesting things is that you can convert human cells to tumor cells by just exposing them to the DNA of the virus. You don't need the infectious process with a whole virus. Naked DNA, so to speak, will be taken up by human cells or mammalian cells and incorporated into their own chromosomes. And then that consequence of that is the one gene from the virus that produces, causes cancer is expressed and the cells transform from normal to tumor cell. That's a wonderful model. And many people have exploited that model extensively since we and others started it. But there was another element of this uh, project that intrigued me, and that was, could we in fact use viruses to alter the genes of the cells they infect? This was a property which is widespread in bacteria. There are viruses which when they infect a bacterial cell, acquire some of the genes of the cell, and when they infect a new cell, they transfer those genes to the new cell. So there's a way of being, alter, being able to alter the genetic makeup of a bacterial by using viruses to carry genes from one cell to another. And that property had proven to be extraordinarily useful and helpful in the study of molecular biology in microbes. That technology was non-existent for animal cells. And so we started to think about how we could possibly do that, and could we use this little simian virus to carry genes, human genes, from one human cell to another. Very quickly learned that that was unlikely to succeed because the virus can only carry a very small amount of DNA. And at the time, while we didn't know the nature of the human genes, how big they were, we surmised that it would be very difficult to actually detect the transfer of a, gene, a single gene from one cell to another using SV40. So the solution to that was, let's give up using the virus. Let's just use naked DNA. So, SV40 virus chromosome is a small ring molecule. It's only 5,000 of the basic units of DNA. So that's pretty small. But nevertheless, that DNA, when deposited on top of human cells, will enter the cells and convert the cells into tumor cells or what we call transformed cells. If you want to bring in foreign DNA, the question is how to use this little ring molecule as a carrier. We had in mind to try to introduce another DNA molecule that comes from a bacterial virus, which is also a small ring molecule. The virtue of this small ring molecule is when it's introduced into a bacterial cell, it can replicate itself and be transmitted from one generation to the next. So the idea was, could we in fact join these two DNA molecules together, bring in the SV40 DNA and the bacterial DNA, and see if we could measure any properties of bringing in the bacterial DNA, or alternatively, take this joint molecule and put it into bacteria and be able to use it to measure and look at what happens to the SV40 DNA. So this was to be a double-headed molecule, one that could propagate or be infect human cells or infect bacterial cells. Question is, how to join two DNA molecules that are closed? 
And the idea is, you will see, is very simple, is you open them both in some way. Some way is to just use a scissor that cuts the DNA molecules at a particular place. But these two molecules will not come together spontaneously. So we had to modify each of them in a way that they want to come together. And the way to do that was to put artificial ends on each, call them Velcro ends, because they function like Velcro. So Velcro ends on this one, Velcro ends on this one, and you mix them together, the ends join. Now, it's not Velcro, it's actually short tails of one of the units of DNA, and the other one is, has the opposite one. And so A's and T's want to come together, and so if A ends are on this one and T ends on this one, the two molecules come together spontaneously. So we were able to make the first recombinant DNA, which contained the genes of the SV40 virus and the genes from this bacterial DNA or virus DNA. We were elated that we could do that. And the fact that we did it caused a big stir. A stir that came back to haunt us because in fact the stir was outrage. Outrage that we were prepared to do an experiment which would introduce cancer genes into a bacterium that lives in people's GI tract. We were accused of possibly doing an experiment that would cause an epidemic of cancer. It came from all sides. It got heated, as you might expect, because I kept saying it's bunk. But at the end, after lots of discussions with people and uh, thinking hard about whether to go ahead, uh, we decided that we would go ahead with the experiment to construct the DNA, but we would not introduce it into bacteria at that point. The, all the experiments that we had in mind were really exciting experiments, but they were essentially put on the shelf. A year or so later, one of my students discovered a very simple way to make recombinant DNAs. She discovered an enzyme which makes Velcro ends. You can cut any DNA from any source on this planet and you'll create a Velcro end at the two ends. And if you create two different DNA, cut two different DNAs with this enzyme, they come together spontaneously. That made the whole process of making a recombinance very simple. I called it at the time a high school experiment. You could buy the enzyme, you could buy the DNA, so you could make anything. As you might expect, the noise level about concerns went up several octaves, several decibels, I should say. So much so that one experiment that was done in conjunction with Stanley Cohn and Herb Boyer was to show that these DNAs that were made could be introduced into bacteria where they are propagated. The bacteria grow and every cell, the millions and millions of cells that are produced, each carry a copy of this new recombinant DNA. As you can see, that raised the noise level about now it was possible to so-called clone any DNA from any source on this planet, some of which could be scary. And as you might expect, people manufactured scenarios which were indeed scary. Do we want to take it, the gene that encodes the um, typhoid gene uh, disease and put it into E. coli? Or should we take a gene that produces, we know produces cancer and, and put that into E. coli and so on. So scenarios exploded 
and the concerns went along with each of these scenarios, so much so that at a meeting of scientists that normally is held every summer at, Wood, at uh, uh, the Gordon Conferences, actually sent a letter to the president of the National Academy of Science calling for a serious discussion and analysis of the potential risks of recombinant DNA. I was asked by the president of the academy to, in, to convene a small group of people to evaluate the concerns. At that meeting, we in fact admitted we didn't know if there were any real concerns. You could imagine them, but didn't know if they were real. So we published a paper in Science and Nature, which called for a brief, what was, came to be called a moratorium on experiments constructing recombinants that had potential risks. The same publication called for a meeting, an international meeting, at which scientists engaged in this kind of work would convene, it was held at a Silomar down to, in Monterey or Carmel, to evaluate A, the potential gains for research, as well as the risk, potential risks for the environment as well as humans. <clears throat> as you might have expected, to have a small group of scientists issue a proclamation asking everybody in the world to stop doing certain kinds of experiments did not meet with great enthusiasm. And many of us really were soundly denounced and, and, uh, and since three or four, five of the scientists were from Stanford where the work had gone on, uh, it seemed a little bit worrisome to the outside world that Stanford was putting a wall around its own science. Nevertheless, the meeting was held in Asilomar, and after three very contentious days of argument and reviewing various science or experiments and trying to evaluate the potential risks of different kinds of experiments, we actually concluded, and this was by far 95% of the people there, concluded that it was appropriate to call for regulations on how the research would be done. And we called for the National Institutes of Health to create a set of guidelines which would limit the kinds of research, the technologies that could be used, and so on. The end result was a year after the Selmar Conference, such guidelines were, were issued, and they were picked up by every scientific country in the world as their own, with slight variation depending on the country. So the Brits had their set of guidelines for recombinant DNA, the Japanese had their own, and so on. So there was a general agreement that there was a potential risk, but no clear evidence of any risk. One of the concerns I should mention because I forgot, simian virus 40, SV40, was in fact first discovered in the polio vaccine. The first batches of polio vaccine were made using monkey cells as the substrate on which to grow the virus that was used to make the vaccine. And the cells that they were using were already from these monkeys that were infected. And so people were great concerned that the early vaccine might have in fact induced cancer, but all the evidence that of checking all the people who had been immunized with those early batches, there wasn't a single indication of cancer. Nevertheless, the fear persisted that the cancer gene in SV40 would, would cause cancer in humans. Actually, there's no evidence that that's ever been the case. But nevertheless, the concern was, and here the imaginations of smart people was boundless. Everybody could imagine different scenarios by which the potential risk would become realized risks. But the end result was the recommendations out of Asilomar were accepted. 
They were implemented. They were seriously uh, followed. So that, and, and over the years, there has not been a single instance of any experiment that could be cited as having caused any problem. I will just recount at Stanford. Stanford was required by the federal government because of receiving federal funds for research to establish a committee to oversee all recombinant DNA research at Stanford. This was to include people from the community as well as members of the non-scientific faculty as well as some scientific faculty. And this committee met regularly to review every experiment that was being proposed. It was interesting that after a few months, five or six months, most of the community people stopped coming. Most of the non-scientists stopped coming because I thought, I think, they recognized that scientists were taking it seriously and abiding by the guidelines and, in fact, performing experiments that were deemed to be exciting but not countermanding any of the guideline regulations. And over time, the guidelines have essentially been uh, softened. Experiments that couldn't be done in the beginning began to be possible. And I think if there is a genetic revolution, it comes out of the ability to pursue all of the avenues which were identified at Asoma and more without fear of any kind of concerns. So from my own career, it was probably rare for a scientist to go from where his own experiments were denounced and which necessitated a very strong involvement in the public policy debate as to whether the experiments could proceed. Um, recombinant DNA came very close to being prohibited in the United States because, as you might expect, the Congress took up the issue and the debate was as uninformed as it could possibly be. One distinguished senator who got up on the floor and said that he had never taken any chemistry or biology, so he couldn't be expected to understand the science. But he believed that that was the most dangerous science to have ever been undertaken in the United States, and he proposed that it be banned. Well, many of us learned to walk the halls of Congress, and I testified on many occasions about the issues in the science, and little by little, the issue subsided. So today, recombinant DNA is the underpinning of the Genome Project, of everything that's being done in genetics. So it has, now, is the Asilomar Conference a model, a model for other kinds of contentious issues? We tried to use that model during the stem cell debate when the federal government prohibited funding any projects using human embryonic stem cells. There, the issue was confounded because there was a strong ethical and religious component which prohibited any kind of rational, I think rational, discussion of pros and cons. And so eventually, Silmar Conference style didn't work. On the other hand, there's a very large group of geochemists who are thinking about uh, geoengineering, as they call it, trying to modify climate by intervening in climate. And they held an Asilomar conference, same place, same format, and eventually came out with a recommendation to also forego any experiments that might jeopardize climate by doing something that had unintended consequences and so on. Now, almost any issue that comes up, a Silomar conference is invoked as the way to resolve it. The most recent one is the debate about so-called CRISPR technology. CRISPR technology is a new, very sophisticated methodology for being, alter, being able to alter 
genes in a directed way. Now, there are many human diseases that are caused by mutations in important genes. If you can fix those mutations, you could cure a person with that disease. Sickle cell anemia, which results from a mutation in a, one of the hemoglobin genes. If you fix that mutation and made them, allow them to produce normal hemoglobin, they'd be all right. But people began to talk about, well, let's stop this kind of genetic diseases for the next generation. That means trying to change the genes that are transmitted from one generation to the next, so-called germline. There, for many, many years, geneticists had said it was off the agenda. But now with this new technology that is so simple, it is possible to conceive of ways of altering an embryo's genetic makeup so that when it develops into a human, it will be normal. As you can imagine, there's lots of debate about this, and the Academy, National Academy of Sciences, sponsored a, a huge Asilomar-type conference in Washington at which the pros and cons of the technology were thoroughly reviewed. In the end, the, the agreement was not to attempt any germline modifications, but to allow experiments to pursue, to, be, to continue for making what we call somatic changes, that is curing a person of their disease, but not invading the germline so that you change for all future generations. I noticed, I read just the other day in a recent science that the, in the greater wisdom of our Congress, they passed a rider to a vital appropriation bill that prohibits the FDA from actually reviewing or calling for reviews of any kinds of attempts at germline modification. So not only is there the existing prohibition against mucking around with genes and embryos, but now, there is a very, very clear-cut prohibition on the FDA even considering any experiments that went in that direction. So I was part of a group that called attention to the potential of the CRISPR technology. I was one of the people and wrote an article with David Baltimore calling for such Going slow, that led to the National Academy Conference. Also, I think validating the, the suggestion to not attempt germline modification until we had more understanding of this procedure. But now there's the intervention of the federal government, which is not true elsewhere. In Britain, they're carrying out experiments that are of the kind that are exploring that as a potential. But here, the federal government has said, no, you can't even try. So science and the polity conflict. They, and appropriately, I think, it's important that scientists recognize that their work has impact on both the imagination and the concerns of the public and have to find ways to resolve those contentious issues. Silmar is one model. It has worked. There are many people who point to it as a path-breaking way of resolving these kinds of issues. I'm not sure it works in every case, but it worked in the case of the recombinant DNA. It has worked in this geoengineering issue and has worked in a few other smaller ones. So somewhere, as scientists, we can get all excited about the experiments we're doing, but we need to think and not only think about, but have to accept the concerns that are thrown at us of what the work will actually um, entail. So 
and I think in the field of biomedicine, we're going to be continuously confronting these issues because they really impinge on our very being. So once we start looking at how brains work and how to read brains, how they work, you can be sure there will be pushback. The public gets excited about scientific advances, but there are people all the time who will point out the downside of the progress, and we have to deal with that. So I think I'm going to stop here. It's a convenient time, I think, to stop and entertain any kind of questions that you have. And I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You'll have to speak loudly because I have trouble hearing, so. Paul, thank you for a most eloquent and inspiring talk. My question is merely whether you ever had an opportunity to thank that high school science teacher. <laughs> when the Nobel Prize was announced, uh, as you often happens, the press very quickly surrounds you and begins to pepper with questions. One of the questions was, who inspired you in science? And I talked about this woman. Her name was Sophie Wolfe. Now, Sophie Wolfe was not a teacher. She actually ran the stockroom. So, so that was a remarkable thing that emerged from the article appeared in, in, in the Times the next day. She loved young people. She organized a science club. And because she ran the stockroom, she had access to everything. And she then sort of encouraged those people who were encourageable uh, to go beyond what they were learning in classes. Sophie Wolf has the distinction of having stimulated or inspired three Nobel Prize winners in that high school. So Arthur Kornberg was one. Another one was Jerome Carl, who's a physicist, and myself. And the school later held a special assembly at which they named one, the wing that had all the science classes as Sophie Wolf for her. And one floor is named for Arthur Kornberg, one floor for me, and one floor for <laughs> Jerome Carl. So, when they had this assembly, she was discovered where she was living, and she long retired. And she was brought up to the school, and she got up on a on a table. She was, you know, cheering. Every class, the whole school was assembled. They were cheering her on. Anyway, so she got a lot of recognition for that. And I never fail to mention. I didn't mention her name here, but most often I will acknowledge what a key role she did had for me and to discover that she had the same kind of effect on others as well. Okay. Paul. Uh, thank you for yet another stimulating talk. As you know, I've heard you speak on a number of occasions, and I've learned something every time. Uh, would you please tell the group a little about the early days at Stanford and the cooperation in your laboratory and how you shared ideas and reagents and one thing and another? The biochemistry department had from its inception in fact, preconception, organized around the principle that we exchange ideas, we talk openly about our experiments, we talk openly about our failures, successes, sharing reagents in many cases. And I have often said that all the reagents that we used for the making the first recombinant DNA, 
for which the Nobel Prize was awarded, were actually reagents in Arthur Kornberg's refrigerator. <laughs> and the knowledge of how to use them was well known amongst everybody. So it's over the history of the 57 years of the department here at Stanford. I should have said that of the seven people who moved here, one has died, one was a founder of the Salk Institute, and the other five are still here. In spite of the fact that every one of them has been in, enticed to move elsewhere, many awards, many distinctions. They are clearly leaders in the fields in which they work, but they've stayed at Stanford. And I think it speaks to the kind of culture that was created in the department. For example, most scientists have a certain amount of space within which they have their students or postdocs. In our department, the space was all shared. So any laboratory that you walked into might have members of different research groups. The end result was all positive because information moved around the department very efficiently and quickly. Methods that were developed in one place were quickly adopted somewhere else. And there was always this generosity of criticisms and acknowledgments and sharing of ideas. And I think that's the hallmark and why the department has prospered over this 57 years. Because the students that come quickly learn that there are no barriers to talking about your experiments. That's not true in many other places. So that's, that's a feature of the department. And I think feedback which we've had from students who've been in the department years and years and years ago cite that characteristic of openness, sharing of space as an important part of the whole educational process that they had. Um, yes. Professor Berg. It was just a remarkable lecture. And I learned so much about the DNA, I had no idea. My question is, how does the DNA with this virus cause a tumor? Yeah, okay. So that's now pretty well understood. Um, DNA in the virus is essentially a package of information. When the virus infects the cell, its package of information goes in and then inserts itself into the cell's chromosomes. So it becomes an integral part of the genetics of that cell. One of the genes in the virus chromosome continues to function even though it's in the cell's chromosome. And that gene produces a protein which disturbs the whole regulation that determines how a cell grows and divides. That gene has been studied in great detail. The protein product it produces is well characterized. And we know what steps in this regulatory process that keeps cells from dividing endlessly. After all, most of our cells divide up to a point and then become quiescent. When they become cancerous, they can begin to grow. They overcome whatever the barrier is to not dividing. They begin to divide and they form tumors. It's that process, that cell division and expansion that's enhanced by this virus gene. And so that's the way it causes cancer. Now, there are many different kind of cancer genes. It turns out that there are many viruses, and viruses produce cancer in a variety of different ways, some of which, like the SV40, some of which because they 
cause a mutation in the host cell DNA that interrupts the regulation, the normal regulation. And so the cell becomes a cancer cell. Yes, sir, you have? Uh, Paul, thank you, elegant lecture. Uh, I want to pursue the, the, the interface between science and policy a little more. You've talked about the assimilar model uh, and the way in which the public consensus and the, and the professional consensus sort of converge there. I wonder about going forward, however. There's, I think, uh, weaker and weaker sort of trust in and support for science more generally. And, uh, I, and there's a tendency among scientists to, for increasing commercialization of, of many of the facilities and, and the uh, auspices. And I wonder if you think that, that this model is going to work going forward or if we need to really, really rethink the, the interface between science and policy. Well, I didn't have time to actually go into detail about the Asomar meeting because of time. But let me say one of the things, it was a very open meeting. One th quarter of the attendees were from the press. So it was an open meeting. The only constraint we asked the reporters and members of the press to observe was not to do anything until the conference was finished. We didn't see there was any benefit to having bits of information at various stages of the discussions going out. And all of them conformed to that. Some of the best coverage in science occurred following the Asilomar meeting. There were awards given for some of the reports and descriptions of the events. Now, as you can imagine, there's 150 people. I would say roughly a quarter of them were from abroad. They came from Russia. They came from all of the Western European countries. They came from Japan. Silomar is a marvelous place to have such a meeting because the weather was unbelievably spectacular in February. So the, the spirit was pretty good. But the meeting was very contentious. And it hung in a balance, actually, until the night before we were to shut down. We were going to close at noon the next day. And those of us who were on the organizing committee, of which I was the chairman, we were very worried about what kind of thing we could summarize, because it wasn't clear. That night, we had allotted a certain amount of time to a group of lawyers and ethicists. Most of the other discussions had been scientists, and the program was organized in a way which I think was very insightful in retrospect. We talked about the science, and what are the problems associated with that science? We went on to the next possibility, and what was the problem there? So we kept the participants engaged. They didn't say, okay, I've done the science, now I'm bored with the worrying about the risks. Risks in science were intermingled. So the meeting was organized in a way that people understood what were the issues and what were the opportunities. What the ethicists and the lawyers told us is our, uh, what's the word I want, um, our responsibility and what would happen if things didn't go as we thought they would. And they pointed at people and say, we can close down your labs. We can shut down your institute. Jim Watson being the particular one who was an outlier during the entire discussion, didn't want to go along with anything. But when he heard what his culpability was, financially as well as uh, reputation-wise, suddenly the next morning, everybody was agreeable to imposing these regulations. <laughs> so what was unique was this was really the first time that participants, presumably producing the risk imposed on themselves a way to mitigate those risks and agreed to accept, in some cases, more stringent requirements than anybody ever thought were needed. In fact, we had agreed that if we were going to impose regulations, they should be strict at the beginning and evolve over time as we learn more and more about the technology. And that's what actually happened. So, out of it, I think 
people finally saw the light, that they had a responsibility, and that they were culpable if anything bad happened. People have said to me, were, was industry also involved? There were some people from industry at the conference, but since they don't get funds from the federal government, they were not required to follow any guidelines. Nevertheless, there wasn't a single company that tried to bypass them. They adopted the guidelines because, as I think, it was easier and cheaper for them to build the necessary facilities to minimize the risk than it was to flaunt it and then be hectored. So the research community and universities all followed the guidelines. There wasn't any case that I know of where anybody had to have their grants withdrawn. And industry followed along and did it as well as and maybe better than most places. And the rest of the world did the same. So it had a remarkable effect the way it played out. And so there's a temptation to think that every time there's some kind of debate between public policy and scientists is to resort to the Solomon model. And people do say that. In fact, the whole CRISPR debate in the early phase was, let's have another Asilomar. So Asilomar has actually even become a word, a verb. <laughs> we Asilomar something. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yes. Any last have there been any developments since your work that have really surprised or alarmed you that led from your work? I think, well, since I have trouble hearing, I'm, a t I'm going to restate your question. You want to know how I responded to this first? No. no, have there been any developments as a result of your work that have alarmed or really surprised you? Oh, yes. Well, uh, you know, the term genetic engineering was born in response to our experiments because it was actually now beginning to engineer genes. And very quickly thereafter, people learned how to actually isolate genes from any organism. The Genome Project relied on the technology of isolating genes to sequence them. But today, there is a, a, a field called synthetic biology, which is doing things that we never dreamed were conceivable or possible. So there are people who are actually trying to synthesize from scratch an entire chromosome to create new organisms, both for practical purposes. For example, there are many microbes out there generating petroleum from biomass. The genes from plants have been used to engineer bacteria to make important pharmaceuticals. So industry has not have been amazing. Genentech, one of the leaders, its whole being is focused on using genetic tricks to make useful medicines. I just point out one thing is 1980 early 1980s or when Genentech went public, they were the first so-called recombinant DNA company. The day they went public at something like $25 a share, the stock went up to over 80 within an hour. Everybody wanted in. Genentech is now one of the leading companies, but there is hardly a pharmaceutical company that is not using genetic engineering as a major tool for the development of drugs and the production of drugs. So it's had an enormous impact. Uh, although many people don't like to talk about GMO foods, um, that's what genetic engineering has done is engineered plants to be more productive and to be even be more nutritious. So, the genetic 
manipulation or engineering, so to speak, is now so integrated into everything that's going on in the biology field or universe, there's no calling it back. Thank you. 